This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Welcome to Lends Me Your Ears. This is a film podcast where we watch something new in cinemas when they're open or on a streaming service, much more likely these days, and we compare and contrast it with older pictures in the same genre from the same filmmaker or starring a featured actor. My name's Karsten Knox. I write a film blog called Flaw in the Iris that you can read at halifaxbloggers.ca. And my name's Stephen Cook, and I'm a culture reporter with the Chronicle Herald and the Saltwater Network here in Halifax. Today on Lends Me Your Ears, we're talking about the films of very talented British thespian Emily Blunt from My Summer of Love right up to her most recent romantic comedy, Wild Mountain Time. We'll be visiting and in a, sub- a couple of cases revisiting a few of her movies. Hi, and welcome back to Lens Me Your Ears. And today we're taking a look at the filmography of one actor in particular, and that is Emily Blunt, whose career on film is about uh, about 20 years now that she's been appearing in films and, and uh, TV and, and streaming products and so on. And, and we've absolutely been delighted by her career rise and her choice of roles over the years. And she very rarely has made any kind of mistakes or errors in the things she's chosen there are very few duds on her list of projects and uh it's it's been wonderful to see that uh going back to i'm trying to think what i first saw her in it was probably maybe sunshine cleaning might be the first thing that i saw her in which came out in 2008 uh but she was already making a name for herself before that with the devil wears prada and uh you know, was was sort of balancing romantic comedies with more straight-ahead dramatic uh, historical dramas and that kind of thing, and and more lately has been uh, involved in some action pictures. And uh, it really, at this point, it seems like there's nothing she can't do on the screen. Would you Would you agree, Karsten? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, she's uh, her versatility is really something, and I think that's part of the reason we chose to to delve into her work. I mean, uh, you mentioned Sunshine Cleaning. She was in Looper. Um, which I think we might have talked about maybe in our uh, time travel. I believe uh, we did, yes. Yeah, time travel movies uh, early. That was one of our first, if our not our first episode here on Lens Me Your Ears. Uh, she's at, she was in one of the best thrillers of recent years, Sicario, which I also think we might have talked about. Yeah. Um, you know, in movies uh, like Your Sister's Sister, uh, the Lynn Shelton picture, probably my favorite of Lynn Shelton's work. Again, we mentioned that film in our Lynn Shelton uh, episode. And, uh, you know, she uh, she took over where Julie Andrews left off in Mary Poppins Returns, which could not have been an easy decision. I mean, you know, what a beloved character for her to, uh, to take on. And I really like Mary Poppins Returns. So, uh, yeah, I, I mean, Emily Blunt, it's gotten to the point, I think, where if she's in a movie, then you sort of have to consider it seriously just by virtue of her, her record and her, her smart choices as a, uh, as a leading, uh, actor. Um, you know, she, she's, I, I, I think about it sometimes, uh, as a, a regular MCU Marvel movie watcher that, uh, she was originally cast to be the black widow in the Avengers, but had to bow out due to a scheduling conflict. Um, you know, not to say, you know, it's no mark on Scarlett Johansson, who I think has done a terrific job with the role, but I, I can often think about the character that I read in comic books, you know, Emily Blunt, I think is probably maybe a little closer to, to that, that kind of, uh, that kind of vibe. Um, 
Now, I gather she was also offered at one point the part of Agent Peggy Carter, but she turned that down. And uh, this past week, she was uh, rumored to have been approached, she and her husband, John Krasinski, to be uh, in the MCU uh, as Reed Richards and Sue Storm of the Fantastic Four. But uh, that apparently was some fan casting. She sort of, uh, she, she talked about that as, as that's not actually been happening and she's not sure that superhero movies are for her but i personally would love to see her in some role in the mcu maybe a spider woman um i you know i've sort of fan casted her myself i guess in in a few occasions i have a feeling at some point everybody winds up in the mcu so (laughs) they'll they'll There'll be a place for her at some point, I'm sure. Hard to say what it'll be. But, uh, you know, we, as we've seen from uh, Edge of Tomorrow, a.k.a. Live, Die, Repeat, uh, she's certainly capable of handling something very physical and stunty and CGI-oriented. Uh, so uh, so we can't count her out for anything at this point. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, but I would say that, you know, if, if you had to think about a genre that she's most commonly found in. It's usually uh, romantic comedy or or a drama with a romantic element to it. She's done. She's kind of been a, a stealth romantic comedy lead uh, in a, in a while. But though tending to the more independent films rather than. I mean, I don't know if Hollywood in the studio system really makes that many romantic comedies anymore. Uh, but she is in Wild Mountain Time, which was a film that I think got delayed some by the pandemic, now available on Amazon Prime, directed by John Patrick Shanley, based on his play. Now, John Patrick Shanley is a filmmaker who we don't see a lot of. Um, he has done some, he sort of jumps between theater and and uh, major motion pictures. He, he did Doubt, uh, some years ago, which I quite enjoyed. And of course, Moonstruck would might be the film he's most famous for. This is a story. Uh, it's a tale out of Ireland. Um, it is a very much a Hollywood production. It's a romantic comedy. Uh, it is not a, a great film by any stretch, but it, it, it lays on thick the Blarney and the whimsy, but I actually kind of enjoyed it. It's getting a lot of bad reviews, but Wild Mountain Time had enough for me, mostly in the charm of the actors, even when they're struggling with the um, with the, the accents. I, I quite enjoyed the film. Uh, what did you think of uh, Wild Wild Mountain Time, Stephen? It's it's definitely a, a mixed peat bog for sure. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I actually saw the play. I saw outside Mullingar in um, at festival uh, theater festival Anaganish. Uh, one of their summer productions a few years back and uh, was quite charmed by it then. Uh, it was a, a, a wonderful play and a wonderful production. Then it's mainly the two characters, um, which in this case are played by Emily Blunt as Rosemary and Jamie Dornan as Antony. And they've basically been living next door to each other on adjoining, adjacent farms uh, in, uh, in this rural area, sort of about an hour outside of Dublin, I guess. And, uh, you know, th- there's obviously a romantic attraction between them but for whatever reason uh fate has conspired to kind of keep them apart as it were uh and uh certainly and mostly with jamie dornan uh his character anthony has has a real problem uh expressing himself in romantically or or otherwise and that's that's been a major roadblock and and uh you know in, in the play it was a you know it was a very intimate um but very funny production here. Of course, they have to introduce all these other elements to make it a film. And, uh, you know, certainly, uh, Shanley has done this before. Doubt was obviously a very successful adaptation of one of his plays. Uh, uh, here, 
maybe it's a little top heavy with the extra stuff. <laughs> maybe if we we had maybe a little more focus on on the two would be lovers, uh, maybe the the course of true love would run a little smoother in this film. But um, it's uh, it's 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 an odd blend of comedy and romance that I think succeeds on as far as presenting likable people on screen that you enjoy watching, even if the situations in which they find themselves tend to be a little uh, on the ludicrous side. Yeah. And I, I could see how it would work on stage. You know, there's this delightful zippiness in the dialogue. There's a scene late in the running where Anthony is trapped in Rosemary's kitchen by a storm and the sort of the force of her need, like she is clearly into him and she, and he likes her too, but he has to sort of get over himself in order to find them the moment together. And it's a lot of fun, the two of them together. Uh, and then there are scenes shot in the exteriors that make the best of the beautiful landscape, the uh, County Mayo, County Wicklow locations. Um, and, uh, you know, you've got John Hamm as Anthony's American cousin, who's a whole lot smoother than uh, than Anthony is. And, uh, you know, the, the the dynamics, the character dynamics, I, I did enjoy. I mean, you know, I was just talking about how much I enjoyed the actors as well. I, it's always great to see Christopher Walken in anything. But I got to wonder what they were thinking. I mean, that guy has such a distinct way of speaking. Uh, to put him in a role where he's this older Irish gentleman, it, it, it's a challenge, you know? It's a challenge for him. You can feel him struggling with that accent. And uh, I got to think there there would have been any number of of Irish actors, you know, Brendan Gleeson is out there walking around. Well, yes, exactly. Why wouldn't they think of him, you know? Um, uh, and, but, you know, it's, it's an odd, it's an odd choice, but you know, they just they, the actors make the best of it, and and I think if you have enough time for a certain kind of whimsy, like if you are a fan of say Moonstruck, um, incidentally, uh, rest in peace, Olympia Dukakis, who uh, recently left us, uh, who was so good in that film. Um, I think there's enough here to uh, to maybe uh, get your interest. I think I think fans of of the, yeah, I think the Moonstruck uh, cohort, people who love Moonstruck, should give this a, a, a at least check it out. Yeah, Walton is a bit of a sore thumb here. It's, he's getting some odd roles lately. It seems like, you know, he thinks like we played a Saskatchewan grain farmer in <laughs> Right, Percy. right. Um, you know, that kind of thing. It's just, I, I guess he's available or just, uh, you know, he he's just working overtime, I guess, taking everything that comes over the transom. But yeah, it would have it would have been nice to have an actual Irish actor perhaps playing the father. Uh, it would have just maybe removed one more barrier to, to getting into this film perhaps because uh, it's certainly something that comes up in a lot of reviews of the film and even if Brendan Gleeson wasn't available because he's pretty busy too I mean, he's probably off filming another season of Mr. Mercedes or something when they were making this movie <laughs> hard to say but um, like Ian Glenn who is an Irish detective on uh, Jack Taylor which is a pretty decent uh, crime series that's on a few different services uh, he would have been terrific as uh, as the the father you know, who's uh, denied his son his legacy, which is the the farm and and so on. So, I mean, it's, certainly there's no shortage of older Irish actors that could have taken on that. But I guess I guess they figure Walken's a draw to get viewers. I mean, that's that's the reason why. And um, and you know, and Ham Ham is a welcome presence. He he's he does fine with his role. Uh, I know that some of the reviews, uh, you know, some of the reviewers got so frustrated with. Uh, Jamie Dornan's Anthony's hemming and hawing and his 
his fidgetiness that they kind of wish that uh, Rosemary would have gone off with John Ham's Adam instead. <laughs> just leave the farm, sell the farm, let somebody else have the land and go off to America and be happy kind of thing and see the world sort of get out of Ireland. But, uh, but of course that's not, that's not how these things go. You know, we've, we've got to, we got to have that uh, young childhood romance fully blossom, I suppose. And, uh, you know, so it's, it's, it's not exactly loaded with surprises either, but yeah, uh, Again, it's one of those things where maybe the whole is less than the sum of its parts, but as you say, the the scenery and and the charm of the the leads is 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 enough to get you through it. Yeah, I'm with you there. Um, yeah, and you've got to have sort of forgive this outrageous possibility that these two very attractive people would have stayed apart for decades. Like, uh, and and it, I I think it makes you less prone to liking, um, uh, you know, the Jamie Dornan act character because he's. He is so awkward and and she's so lovely and so friendly and so clear that she's interested in him. <laughs> it's the yeah, it, it's there's a lot of stuff here. There's a lot of Hollywood, I would say Hollywood conventions that that you need to overcome. It's so so unlikely, but you know, yeah, yeah, there's there is a charm here and I I uh, I wouldn't uh, I I wouldn't say that that it isn't worth seeing at all. In fact, I had a kind of nice time with it. Um so uh, yeah, so uh, another film we want to talk about today, and that is my summer of love, uh, going back to the beginning of uh, of um, Emily Blunt's career as uh, um, you know as a, an actor on on the big screen. And uh, this is an interesting project for those who haven't seen it. It was directed by Pavel Pavelkowski. It came out in two thousand and four. Uh, Pavelkowski much more recently uh, had a, a quite a bit of success with Cold War, which was a, um, an Oscar. I can't remember if it won. It was certainly nominated for Best International Film at the Oscars. Um, and uh, this is a film that uh, kind of put Blunt on the the map as a, uh, a screen presence. And, and she she didn't waste much time before exploding into Hollywood after this film. Um, you know, in, this is 2004. In 2006, she was in The Devil Wears Prada. And in between, I believe she won a Golden Globe for a film, a TV movie she made, um, Gideon's Daughter. But uh, yeah, this film, My Summer of Love, shot in West Yorkshire on a gorgeous summer uh, where Blunt and Natalie Press are two teenagers. Natalie is Mona, a small town girl who lives in a former pub that's run by her brother, Phil, played by the always welcome Patty Considine. Uh, and he's born again. Uh, and he's got a lot of problems besides that, which we start to see throughout the course of the film. Now, Blunt is Tasman. She's an upper-class girl who got kicked out of boarding school. Tasman is angry because her father is always away having an affair with her, with his uh, secretary while uh, uh, her mother is off working in theater. And her sister died of anorexia some, some time ago, so she's all alone in a big house. But she and Mona, they really spark, despite being from very different worlds there's there's a whole lot of humor in this film i was laughing at a lot of their antics as they ride around town on mona's little honda sunbathing and running around the woods and basically getting into trouble it's kind of a summer coming of age movie uh and a, and a real love story and and the actors do have great chemistry i gather they improvise a lot of their scenes uh blood does something she does uh, has done very well in her whole career is being bored and arch uh, and posh. And it's something she puts that into great effect in the devil's wears Prada, which I think we're probably going to talk about. Um, but 
yeah, she's uh, she's something in this. Uh, and I gathered, Stephen, is this the first time you'd seen My Summer of Love? Yeah, I, I had not come across this. So it's it's great to A, catch uh, Emily Blunt's first sort of major film role, but also uh, a Pavel Pavelkowski film I hadn't seen because I, I, I really enjoyed Cold War and the film that came before it, Ida, um, about a, a young nun who discovers the truth of what happened to her family during the uh, Second World War. So uh, it's great to jump back and catch an earlier film of his and, and see how how he has that skill at blending kind of difficult characters, characters who have um, emotional barricades to, to happiness and, and moving forward in life. And, and, and this seems to fit perfectly with the themes of some of those later films, uh, you know, in a much more bucolic setting, but, uh, but still there, there's a, a lot of, um, you know, a lot of emer- emotional turmoil in both of these young women that we uh, we follow through the film. And it's, uh, yeah, remarkable performances by both of them. Uh, Natalie Press, I'd, I'd seen her before in, in a few things, um, like Peter Greenaway's Night Watching and also um, in Suffragette uh, and 50 Dead Men Walking, which is probably sort of the largest role of hers that I'd seen. But, um, you know, here she's really wonderful and uh, I kind of want to hunt down some more of her work. She's the, the, the contrast between her as this kind of almost wild child, if you will. And, uh, and then Tamsin's kind of reserved controlling um, demeanor, the, the, the way they kind of feed off each other. I mean, it kind of reminds me of heavenly creatures in a way uh, the, the, um, the Jackson, the Peter Jackson thriller, but uh, not quite as extreme, but the same kind of relationship between these kind of this codependent uh, bond that forms between the two young women. I thought it was really well portrayed. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I, I really enjoyed the Goldfrapp soundtrack for those uh, who are fans of, of uh, Alison Goldfrapp. That's a, that's something to hear. Um, I think the film captures a kind of fleeting emotion, the joy that comes from first love in a real, but not in a, in a sort of saccharine sort of way. Um, the actors, they both have this incredible presence. And uh, I kind of, I'm sort of surprised that press hasn't had as high profile a uh, uh, career as blunt because she's just, she is so good in this. Um, I haven't seen her. I mean, you mentioned all those films. I've seen those ones and she's great, great in those, but, uh, but I haven't seen nearly as much of her. Um, this is a film I have on DVD. And, uh, this is one of those ones where the director's commentary is very worth listening to. Um, Pavlikovsky says that blunt who he basically discovers, uh, for this film is a born actor. She said he says that she seduces people with her eyes as soon as she's in a scene with someone, but when she's alone, her eyes go all bored. And I think that's true. I think there's like a uh, there's kind of like you can see that she's she sort of weaponizes that kind of look in her in her film roles where she can be very connected to another actor in a film. She has great chemistry with a lot of actors, uh, but then. When she's she's alone, she has this kind of flat look, which which actually works really well for character because she knows how to use that, and I think she's very well. She's very self possessed as an actor, and I think that's part of the reason she's so much fun to watch. You're listening to Lens Me Your Ears, the film podcast. Today we're talking about the career, many films of Emily Blunt, who has made a lot of good movies. There's no way we can talk about all of them in the course of an hour and give give them the uh, 
the the care and attention they all deserve. But uh, we're going to pick out a few. And in this next segment, which I think leans more towards her romances, her romantic comedies and dramas, we're going to start with one of her biggest films, uh, and that is The Devil Wears Prada from 2006, based on the book by Lauren Weisberger and directed by David Frankel. Uh, now, Lauren Weisberger famously worked with Anna Wintour, the editor of Vogue, uh, you know, so-called uh, legendary uh, – <laughs> there's a lot of words that have been used to describe Anna Wintour. Uh, but uh, but I, I will, uh, for the, the sake of civility, will just say she is an intense and uh, well-known figure in magazine publishing and in fashion. Uh, now – Weisberger denies that the Meryl Streep character in this film is based on Wintour, but it's very hard to believe. Uh, Streep plays Uber fashion magazine editor Miranda Priestley, who is looking for a new second assistant. And uh, Anne Hathaway plays Andrea, a Midwestern journalist student in New York, wants to be a writer, but also wants to pay the bills. And uh, so she gets this job. Of course, she starts, she's a bit of a slob. But, you know, truthfully, she looks just like pretty much everybody else. But she does get the job despite having no interest in fashion. And she's treated like a subhuman because of this, especially by Priestley and her first assistant, Emily, played by Emily Blunt, who is terrific in this role. So uh, Andrea, or Andy as she likes to be known, works very hard to try to put up with all this nastiness in the workplace. Eventually learning that even if she screws up, if she looks better and wears the haute couture herself, at least she can get a modicum of respect for having taste. She finds an ally in Stanley Tucci's Nigel, a designer at the magazine. He's very good, as always. Uh, Andy's boyfriend, Nate, played by Adrian Grenier of Entourage fame, starts to get annoyed at how Andy is changing for her work, uh, even as his job as a sous chef wouldn't you know, I'm sure that would keep him very busy, probably too busy even to care. I mean, this is New York, people. In order to live there, you have to make incredible sacrifices, including missing your boyfriend's birthday, maybe. Um, but uh, I found Andy's friends and her and uh, her lover is a little thinly sketched, but that's, that's okay. It's really about the workplace. This is a workplace comedy, uh, an occasional drama. Streep is awesome. You know, we've got another character from her that we've never seen her play before. Uh, though I guess there are probably shades of the power-hungry political mother from the Manchurian Candidate, the remake that she made. Um, her Priestley is astonishing. He's, she's very real, and she grounds the movie from being sort of too fluffy. Um, yeah, so uh, I'm interested in seeing, hearing what you thought of the film, Stephen. I have some problems with it. I'm going to wait until I've heard what you have to say about it before I get into that. <laughs> I, I quite enjoyed the film. I felt kind of guilty that I'd slept on it for so long. It's definitely one of those films that I'd meant to get around to for for some time now. And uh, Streep is uh, is is fantastic as uh, Miranda Priestly. She's she's kind of like a what did what did I, I? She kind of reminded me of maybe George Saunders as as the evil tiger Shere Khan in the Jungle Book or something <laughs> like that. You know, she's got. I, the the grin of a snake and the the purr of a panther ready to pounce. I guess you know, like just. You know, she's so reserved, but there's just that cauldron of evil simmering underneath. And uh, I think I read on a trivia note somewhere that she kind of based her approach or her delivery a bit on working with uh, Clint Eastwood, who would be very reserved. But you could tell like when something wasn't to his liking or when, you know, that there'd be that kind of just 
hint of a snarl. Oh, that's interesting. And, and, uh, and she kind of channeled that and, and, and made it her own a little bit. And, uh, I, I can kind of see that. I mean, she's not trying to do a Clint Eastwood impression by any stretch, but, but that kind of coiled menace mm-hmm. <laughs> lurks beneath. But at the same time, you know, she, she, she gets to have these human moments and, uh, and you get to see behind the facade a little bit. And uh, I thought that was, you know, a very smart way to portray the character. And, um, and, and Anne Hathaway is great. She's pretty much perfect for this role. I mean, Emily, Emily Blunt would have been the big surprise for everyone watching this when it came out because they wouldn't have been that familiar with her at the time. And she's kind of, you know, she's this demon herself. She's a kind of a, uh, a sub demon uh-huh. <laughs> of, of the devil. And yet, and she's got to have a bit of a thaw happen as well. And I, I thought the way that she handled that, was was very good i mean they give her a lot of the the comedic lines i mean you could see how her character would work in an old screwball comedy from the 1940s or something like that you know she tells andrea that you know when andrea's getting all these breaks and she goes you don't deserve them you eat carbs that's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just you know that kind of defines her character right there um but uh, you know it's it's a world i wasn't familiar with uh, i thought uh, as like you, I thought Stanley Tucci was great. The, the scene where he explains to Andy the importance of fashion and, you know, th- how it just creates works of art walking around the streets every day. I thought was, it was a, a great, uh, a great moment for him, a great monologue. And, uh, you know, I, 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 and I agree with you on the, the boyfriend part that uh, he, he's a chef in a, in a high end kitchen. He should understand long hours and, and weird work environments and that kind of thing. And, and, and and that's one of the things that didn't really click the whole relationship part of things. And um, but that that as you say, it's not really the focus. It's about really the work and the career and that kind of thing. And I thought that aspect of the film clicks really well. Yeah, I like this portrait of this particular industry. I, I enjoyed that, and I enjoyed the dynamic between those those lead characters. Uh, here's the problem, and I, I I watched this a second time, you know, pre- prepare for this podcast, and I had this problem when I first saw it back in 2006, and I have this problem now, is that there's this complicated formula because it's a little, you know, as with a lot of comedies, there's a bit of wish fulfillment going on here. It expects us to be in love with the fashion world uh, and expects us to love seeing Andy transform into this, this, uh, you know, it, 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 the, the appeal of, of looking good and being confident. And I, and I get that, you know, um, we, we want, but at the same time, it wants us to relate to Andy's skepticism of fashion and superficiality, um, you know, and it's, uh, it, it, it sets up these characters and it does give them humanizing elements, but it, uh, it forgives a lot of terrible behavior. You know, it's basically saying underneath these aren't really such bad people, even though they treat people terribly. And, uh, I, I feel like it doesn't quite mesh that, that, uh, wanting us to admire and be attracted by this world. But then, um, I, I just don't think that good taste and success are an excuse for treating people like crap. And, uh, and I don't know that the film really succeeds in making us, uh, um, you know, in, 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 in forgiving that. And, uh, you know, I, I think, I think if you sacrifice and sacrifice for success and fame and beautiful clothes, it destroys your relationships to you become a corporate climbing soulless autonomous, uh, uh, or automation, I should say you, you don't, I don't think you get any sympathy because you're getting a divorce, for instance. I, I, there, are, there are ways in which that the film wants us to feel more sympathy for them, the meaner characters, and I, I, didn't, I don't know that I quite got 
got made that leap. Um, but I suppose at the end, and and this is, I'm sorry if this is a spoiler for people who haven't seen a film that's 15 years old, but uh, um, Andy does find a way to escape. Uh, but but she also finds a way to respect the people who treated her so badly. And I I I, I don't know. I guess she bought into it. So maybe that's. Maybe I'm maybe I'm just thinking about it too much. But what did you what do you think about that, Stephen? <laughs> well, that's yeah. I guess that's the nature of climbing the corporate ladder. I suppose you know it kind of makes me think of Working Girl with Melanie Griffith, who has a kind of a similar path through the course of the film. Uh, maybe a kinder, gentler one, in a lot of ways. But then, of course, the fashion industry is is famous for being pretty brutal. So I guess that's what uh, what people expected, especially maybe based on what the film is actually based on you know, having some grounding in in a real life person who's fairly notorious i guess uh they couldn't have miranda change too much or become too human mm. and that's you know and i guess that's just the nature of publishing and and the fashion industry it, it's uh i i didn't let that get to me too too much and and you're right it does kind of offer her a way out um ultimately so uh, it didn't. It didn't. It didn't eat at me uh, as as much as it did you over the course of the film. I don't think. Okay, <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Um, I mean, yeah, Andy does come out smarter at the end for having uh, having had the experience, and I just I just wondered about her finding. You know, it's, I get the sense she found respect for people who treated her so badly, and and I I just found a hard time caring about them. Although you know, full marks to Blunt and uh, to Streep for for their roles. Uh, they're both really really good in in this part and i think i think it's the, that them and, and hathaway the, those sort of like those three that make the film worth seeing and and uh i guess if if you you know maybe if i love fashion more i i would have been more engaged by that part of it but uh but yeah i mean for me i just i was reminded of of some of the people i met when i worked in the film industry <laughs> <laughs> and so it cut a little close because some of those personalities were were very difficult to uh, to deal with as well um so uh some of the other films that we watched uh that uh, one was new to me uh and that's the great buck howard from 2008 written and directed by sean mcginley and it's a behind the scenes showbiz comedy weirdly old-fashioned and awkward but funny in places it's sort of shot like a sitcom uh but it manages sort of a sweetness that i kind of liked it's clearly made by someone who loves the amazing kreskin and for fans of uh the tonight show with johnny carson they'll remember this character uh, it's about a mentalist a magician is a bit of a bad word around buck howard who used to be a big deal he was on the tonight show 61 times but his career is sort of in twilight and he needs a new road manager. So Troy, played by Colin Hanks, lands the job despite having zero experience. Uh, that's the part I found a little hard to swallow. He muddles through despite his father's wishes. They actually get Tom Hanks to be Colin's dad in the movie, which uh, which is funny for he plays a dude who hates show business and he thinks his son should stick to law school. Uh, so while trying to manage Buck Howard, one weekend in Cincinnati, they are joined by Valerie, who works for... The new uh, for the New York PR firm that Buck uses, and that's Emily Blunt. Now, uh, John Malkovich plays Buck, and I love Malkovich, especially in dramatic roles where his natural intelligence and his seething fury can be put to good use. But I struggle to accept him in this role. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, when he's being demanding and unreasonable, I buy him, but he doesn't have a lot of warmth or charm. And uh, 
I just felt like why choose again it's a casting problem I had why choose him when Fred Willard is alive and walking around or at least he was then uh, what did you make of the great Buck Howard Stephen yeah it, it's kind of an old-fashioned showbiz fable I guess and 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 maybe that's a bit of a mark against it because it did feel a bit musty around the edges even as they're throwing some pretty powerful actors at us in various roles over the course of the film. Malkovich does seem oddly miscast here. You know, like Christopher Walken in Wild Mountain Time. He, 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 he doesn't seem like the kind of performer who would have this kind of, you know, granted his, his following isn't what it was, but that he has any at all is, is kind of a miracle because he's been doing the same <laughs> act for the last 30 years or whatever. And I, I, I feel like if somebody with a little more charisma i mean john malkovich is charismatic but maybe not in the kind of show busy way that this uh film required um obviously they need someone who can be nasty when he's not on stage and, and malkovich excels at that part but the I, I i find that uh the delineating line between the performer and the person maybe wasn't as sharp as it could have been i mean he's kind of the villain of the piece in a way even though he's the title character but colin colin hanks is is sort of our you know he's he's our eyes and ears in this world and 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 at least he's very likable and and we kind of understand what he's doing or what he's going through is he's trying to help this uh you know this has been basically just get through the day and get from show to show and when emily blunt shows up they have a really nice chemistry and uh, th- that's definitely the best part of the film you know when when she's trying to get him through a series of shows and stunts and try and generate some heat for the rest of his tour which doesn't quite happen the way they had hoped <laughs> but uh but yeah it's it's so funny because I, I i enjoy this look at the fringe or you know films that look at the fringes of show business not the hollywood of the new york version but the kind of flyover state version of of showbiz and this film definitely has a lot of that but i just uh yeah, I just wish it had a little more sparkle at its core, and it, uh, I think that's something that's, uh, that's missing from here. Yeah, yeah, but I agree with you that the best part of the film is between Colin Hanks and Emily Blunt. They've got kind of a naive charm together, uh, and if it had been more about them, and then I think I, I, would have, I would have liked it more. I still think it's worth a look. Yeah, so um, there are a few other films we could talk about, Stephen. What should we talk about next uh, in terms of uh, Emily Blunt's other choices? Well, she went right from uh, from this film into The Young Victoria a year later, a very, very different film. Again, a, sort of a traditional British costume drama. Queen Victoria in the uh, years immediately before and after her coronation. Directed by Jean-Marc Vallée, great Canadian director, with a script by Julian Fellows, who gave us Gosford Park and Downton Abbey. And... Uh, it's a weird mix. I'm not a big fan of Julian Fellows' writing. Like, I, I love Gosford Park, but I was never a, a big Downton fan. And uh, so I, I almost feel like there's a clash between director and script happening throughout this film. Um, so uh, we have, but we have to focus on the star. And thankfully, she's uh, very watchable as, as Victoria, who's obviously, you know, at the center of a hugely turbulent period in history and uh, of course we get the romance with uh with prince albert who uh became her husband and consort uh i think he was also her cousin <laughs> played here by rupert friend he was, he's a i guess from the house of coburg i guess the, the german uh 
royal family that it's sort of an alliance but also uh, a genuine romance and uh, i think the film does a pretty decent job of of giving us all the key players uh over the course of uh victoria's rise to the throne and rise to power and it's uh and it's also exceedingly well cast i mean uh, she's well supported we've got miranda richardson as her mother the duchess of kent who's uh trying to manipulate her to to gain her own power with the help of uh, her uh, secretary, Sir John Conroy, played by Mark Strong, a familiar British character actor I'm sure most people recognize. Jim Broadbent is the king, uh, the aging king who Victoria uh, succeeds on the throne. He's wonderful in his uh, early scenes in the film. And uh, also like Paul Bettany is Lord Melbourne, who's um, the prime minister that was Victoria's confidant. And it, it, it seems like a lot of their relationship is, is, fairly accurate historically for the most part but uh but i wonder what you know you kind of it kind of ends in the middle of things it doesn't really have a strong ending because obviously her reign would continue and it is about the young victoria uh but i but i thought it was as as a portrait of this very well-known personage in hair in history i thought it did a great job and 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 blunt was great as the queen yeah i liked her and i liked all those actors you mentioned uh jim broadbent harriet walter i really like um julian glover or glover i guess who is a a longtime british uh character actor he's wearing this crazy nose in this film uh almost hides his his uh i almost didn't recognize him um but uh yeah i just couldn't i couldn't quite love it i i found it a little too stayed a little too um uh it just didn't the, the stakes didn't quite grab me uh, i kept being reminded of of shikar kapoor's elizabeth and which is again another story of a of a, a young queen coming to power, and that was so passionate and uh, structurally not so not dissimilar to this. But that one is you know is about murder and about taking power and about the the the, the sacrifices that you have to make in order to to achieve power. And and this is just sort of about a mismatched couple who are you know. Um, where she her her uh, naivete and her inexperience gets her into trouble, and then eventually things work out okay, despite the fact that uh, there is there's some uh, some a, a, a bit of a shocking development in the last act, but uh, but I still felt the stakes were sort of medium throughout. Um, yeah, yeah, it's probably just a little hamstrung by being tied to to history and historical events so much. I mean, they they kind of play up an assassination attempt on her life, which did happen in uh, in real life, but uh, not quite as dramatically as it's portrayed in the film, but they obviously needed to play something up for the, the third act of, of the film to some degree. Uh, but I guess it does have that, that feel of pageantry as opposed to a compelling, a compelling narrative. It, you know, watching famous people from history doing historical things that are written down in the record kind of thing. Uh, I, I felt like... Uh, like Jean-Marc Vallée was kind of going for his uh, Barry Lyndon uh, in terms of the style of the film and the lighting and and so on, and it, it, it looks great, but but somehow, like I say, the, the direction seems at odds with the script that probably needed a little more oomph to it, I guess. And yeah, it's, it's, if you're a fan of history, of course, there's the current series about Victoria. This might be a nice adjunct to that, but... Uh, I was I was curious to see it, but uh, it did not uh, thrill me the way, as you say, Elizabeth 
did uh, and its sequel. Those are true, truly uh, gripping uh, historical dramas. Um, so she made a couple of other films uh, right after this, Wild Target and Salmon Fishing in the Yemen. We watched both of those. I don't know which, if we have time for both, but uh, I... I uh, I really like them both uh, for different reasons. I probably like Salmon Fishing in the Yemen more because uh, it's such a peculiar film, kind of a romantic comedy slash political drama slash, uh, geez, even satire to some degree. But Wild Target is more a, uh, a romp, a British set broad comedy directed by Jonathan Lynn, uh, who's known for having worked on classic British TV series like Yes, Minister. Uh, he also directed My Cousin Vinny, and this is the story of a repressed assassin played by Bill Nighy, uh, who falls in love with a kleptomaniac con artist played by Emily Blunt. Uh, I gather, was this the first time you'd seen Wild Target, Stephen? Yeah, it was a fun little lark, I guess. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's kind of like if, if John Wick was, it was a slapstick comedy. <laughs> <laughs> it, might, it might turn into something like this. Yeah, everybody's really charming. The, the fact that people have to kill each other is is treated very lightly. It's it's it seems it feels like maybe a later version of like a fifties British Ealing comedy or something like that. Like you could maybe see this being made with Alec Guinness as the assassin or something or someone along those lines or Peter Sellers or something like that. It's 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 pretty light and and not meant to be taken too seriously. And and you've got Martin Freeman kind of as the heavy as the sort of more ambitious and kind of sociopathic uh, uh, hired killer who's on uh, uh, Bill Nighy's uh, trail and out to, to fulfill a contract on uh, Emily Blunt's Rose. So it's kind of fun and flashy and it's not the sort of thing you're, that's going to sit with you a long time after you've seen it, but you, you enjoy spending time with these characters and, and, and watching the kind of scrapes they get into. And um, I, I, it seems like Victor Maynard kind of loses his edge a little bit as the film goes along. And I guess it kind of has to, because you have to believe that he could possibly be involved with Rose in some fashion. But, uh, you know, that's maybe that's one of the downsides of this film is that maybe I didn't need to see the film go there, as it were. But uh, but the trip along the way was quite enjoyable. Yeah, yeah. And I, I like Martin Freeman with his crazy false teeth. And Rupert Everett is also great in it. I just want to say a couple things about Salmon Fishing. Uh, I'm generally not a fan of Lassie Hallstrom, who's a director there. Um, I think he approaches the humanism of Ang Lee, but with he's can, his films can be really mushy. Uh, but here he's coming up with something I really liked, and uh, it's a film that juggles drama, comedy, and romance with multiple international locations. And when I, I don't remember the last time I saw a film that incorporated ideas on salmon migration, terrorism, and... Uh, considered fishing as an exemplar of faith um and it it, it does function as a, a light satire of government bureaucracy it's loosely about a scientist who gets roped into bringing salmon to the yemen through the machinations of the british government a wealthy yemeni and a uh, determined financial advisor so it stars ewan mcgregor as a scientist named fred jones emily blunt is the advisor harriet chetwood talbot and amir awakid as uh as the sheikh uh, oh and kristen scott thomas as patricia maxwell the prime minister's press secretary she basically steals every scene she's in uh, and uh yeah it's a lovely kind of slow burn romance between the character played by mcgregor and blunt um but she's attached to a hunky british soldier played by robert meisen and Fred is married to Mary, played by Rachel Sterling. And uh, the, those relationships 
become you know there there's it's about the pressure those relationships have pressure put upon them and uh anyway i don't want to say too much about it in case you haven't seen it but uh but yeah it's a strangely delightful kind of old-fashioned speaking of old-fashioned uh in its british formality both english and scottish uh here uh, mcgregor is acting in his actual accent which uh is kind of lovely to hear and uh yeah i i, I enjoyed salmon fishing in the yemen uh, seeing it for a second time it, it held up yeah, it's a lovely film. I love the relationship that develops between uh, Emily Blunt's uh, sort of hard-nosed financial advisor and and uh, Ewan McGregor's befuddled fish scientist who who doesn't really know what to make of her because they're just from completely different worlds. And the, I mean, the parts of the film I like the most is where it's it's still like a friendship. I like watching their friendship develop uh, when things get a little more serious, just like Wild Target. It's it's maybe not as appealing. I kind of wish that. Maybe it didn't have to become romantic. I'm curious about the novel because uh, it's based on a novel by Paul Torday. And I think that attributes uh, some of the unpredictability of of the storyline. You don't it's it's like following a stream. It just kind of wends its way through uh, through one situation to another. And you're not really 100 percent sure where it's going to go. And I like that unpredictability of the film. And, and and the relationship between the characters. I kind of wish we, maybe we had a little more insight into the marriage between uh, Dr. Jones and his wife, played by Rachel Sterling, who's an actor I, I quite enjoy. She's also in the Young Victoria, kind of briefly, or a blink and you'll miss her kind of part. But, um, you know, I've enjoyed Rachel Sterling's work quite a bit in recent years. I would have liked to see more of her character, but obviously the focus is is not on the marriage, but on how it's falling apart, I guess. And, and that's because of... Uh, of Harriet coming along into Dr. Jones's life, but uh, it, it's it's an unusual kind of quirky romantic comedy that doesn't uh, necessarily follow the formula, and just like the salmon swimming upstream, you can't necessarily predict where it's going to go. Hi, I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson, host of the Food Podcast. But do you know what? It's not just about food; it's about people and their stories shared through the lens of food. Food Podcast has been described as an audible fairy tale. How about that? You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. So come join us. We would love to share our stories with you. Welcome back to Lens of Your Ears, the film podcast that takes a look at new films on streaming services and in theaters and compares them to films from days gone by. And today we're taking a look at the work of Emily Blunt, who has uh, a couple of new films coming up around the riverbend, as it were, with Jungle Cruise and A Quiet Place Part 2. And for this segment, uh, we're going to look at some of her kind of more high concept Hollywood action-y, thriller-y kind of films. We've been looking at some romantic comedies and some independent dramas, but she also rises to the occasion in uh, some more bigger budget, uh, higher concept films. And uh, the Adjustment Bureau, I think, might be uh, one of the more notable ones of these, where she's uh, a woman who comes into contact with a um, political hopeful played by Matt Damon, David Norris. He's trying to run for... uh, run for Congress, and there are these mysterious forces behind the scenes that are trying to basically maneuver him into the White House, and they're a little supernatural. They have powers that are not uh, of this world, as it were, and uh, Elise Sellis, played by Emily Blunt, she's a dancer, she's kind of a free spirit, and 
she is not part of the plan. And so basically we get a bunch of agents, including Anthony Mackie, a.k.a. the Falcon. But there's a bunch of basically mysterious men in black, yeah, uh, uh, as it were. Terrence Stamp is, is the is the sort of... Oh, yes. The, of course, he's he's one of the kind of higher ups that we yeah. encounter later in the film. And it's yeah. great to see him mm-hmm. as well. The thing, the, the gradual realization that there are forces at work that are a little outside of the edge of what we would consider normal. And uh, basically, we have to watch Matt Damon's David Norris and Emily Blunt's Elise try to come to stay together and make it through to the end of this kind of maze that they've been put into by these uh, mysterious forces from the adjustment bureau. And it's, it, it's a fun kind of puzzle piece. It's, it's kind of like a dark city light, I guess, uh, you know, as people are jumping through doors that can somehow bend the fabric of space and time and, and so on. And, and meanwhile, we've got this every man who's kind of caught up in this, this whole uh, mysterious misogosh. And, and it, it's a lot of fun on that level. I don't think it's uh, a perfect, action adventure film but i think it has a pretty decent concept and and uh, makes the most of what it's got yeah i i I enjoyed that sort of it's based on a philip k dick story and i do enjoy i was i enjoyed the i guess discussions around free will versus determinism you know but uh and and the whole kafka-esque look of the 39 steps with all these people in hats there's a lot there to enjoy in the look and the feel of the film, but I think it really does lean towards the romanticism rather than any real philosophical conversation. Uh, and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But um, <laughs> what I did enjoy, once again, is chemistry between the stars. Emily Blunt and Matt Damon are so good together. Every time they get together in the space and they work together, they're so in that, in, in uh, or they act opposite each other, they're so good. And, um, I, I sort of, after watching this, I was like, why haven't they made half a dozen romantic comedies together? Because clearly their chemistry is off the charts. And uh, I so enjoy the two of them, especially. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I did, uh, I did. you know, as far as fantasy romances go, I did really like it. And watching it again, it's also a great New York movie. It just, there's so many great locations around the city. And uh one thing about the film that I have to mention is why was Jennifer Ely recently, you know, she was in the Academy Award winning King's Speech and she's an award winning actor. She's in, two, in a two line role as a Brooklyn bartender. Uh, I wondered if she owed the director a favor or maybe she's plays, maybe she plays God and we're just supposed to uh, assume that's uh, that's who that is. Because <laughs> at one point, I think Anthony Mackie says, you might even know the person who's in charge, but you wouldn't recognize them or you wouldn't see them. And I'm, Or you've, you've met you've them met already. them already. And I'm thinking, aha, maybe that's maybe that's why they decided to put her in that role. I can't figure it out because I've seen the film a couple times now. And it's like every time I see her, it's like, oh, oh, I, I, it's like that meme with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio pointing at the screen. I do that every time. <laughs> so yeah uh do we want to say a few things about the wolfman uh directed by joe johnson i wasn't that crazy about the wolfman i just felt like benicio del toro is the lead he just seemed really uncomfortable in the in the in the lead as usual blunt is terrific but uh what what did you make of it Stephen? it was better than i expected I, i i did not see it when it came out and i have a real fondness for the original with lon chaney jr so i was kind of uh hesitant about about it but uh Del Toro kind of looks a bit like Lon Chaney Jr., so he's got that going for him, but he's not as sympathetic or as appealing in the role as uh, Chaney Jr. was. And uh, Emily Blunt has kind of the thankless role of of the woman from his f- family's 
estate area who he obviously has to have form a connection with somebody because his father played by Anthony Hopkins is a complete lunatic. She does okay with what she's got, but it's, it's not a lot. He's basically got to be the thing he's striving for the one bit of normality in his life. I mean, it would have been, I guess a a choice role to take at the time, but it, it doesn't really do her any favors. No, it doesn't. I mean, it's a big, broad, expensive production. And, uh, I, I, I like some of the, that aspect of it, the production values, I suppose. And there's a scene late in the film, basically like the King Kong going crazy in New York scene. It's it's uh, Del Toro turns into a werewolf in a medical theater. Um, and I, I really enjoyed that. And the gore is really kind of off the charts for a, a movie like that's as... Uh, clearly going for what it's going for. I was impressed by that. If you like your gore, there there's quite a bit here. But uh, but I wondered about the choice of making the Wolfman look like the sort of Lon Chaney version. Or, I mean, the association I have is James Hampton in Teen Wolf. I just felt that was a terrible mistake. Like when he's, when we really see the wolf and later in the film, he just doesn't, he just looks like a dude with a bad Halloween costume on. And I felt like that was a real mistake. <laughs> there's been so many more modern werewolves that look more like you know huge dogs and i feel like that's the way to go now but that's uh that's neither here nor there well i i think it's probably because they were trying to tie it in with that whole failed dark universe thing that universal were trying to pull off with that tom cruise version of the mummy which also threw a jekyll and hyde into the mix and uh it was kind of a failed attempt to have their own shared universe and I feel like this was kind of along those lines and, you know, it was trying to stick with the past, but also do something new and fell somewhere in the middle. Yeah. And it's funny because what I've heard is that uh, they're going with the success of the invisible man from last year with um, uh, Elizabeth Moss, they are going to redo those dark universe, but with, with uh, individual takes that are very different. And I, I think they're going to try the wolf man again. And I, I don't, I don't know how I feel about that, but uh, you know, no one asks me my opinion, <laughs> which is why we talk about it here on a podcast. Yes. Well, I'm more interested in a return to uh, Edge of Tomorrow uh, coming coming up at some point. It, sort of rumored, I guess, at this point. But it, it was it was a, a pretty big hit, even though it wasn't an initial giant success, but definitely found its audience. And, you know, it, it's, it's basically Groundhog Day meets Starship Troopers is the easy way to sum it up. That's how I believe that's how the filmmakers themselves uh, described it. Uh, director Doug Lyman uh, working with uh, with a Christopher McQuarrie script based on a Hiroshi Sakurazaka manga about a, a, a guy thrust into combat against aliens who, because he gets soaked in alien blood, uh, when he's at the moment of death, he's somehow able to kind of revive and relive the day over again. You know, it was a, we're pretty familiar with the formula by now. There've been so many Groundhog Day kind of movies, uh, and uh, you know, Emily Blunt is uh, is Rita, the um, Full Metal rhymes with witch, who who's like the 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 warrior who's who's you know saving the day and is kind of the, the poster child for enlisting for this uh, war against the aliens, which ultimately uh, doesn't look like it can be won, and. Uh, you know, it has that video game idea that, you know, you have to use up another life to get further in the game and further in the game. That's what inspired it. And that's how it kind of plays. But it's a lot of fun. It's 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 a full on a, adrenaline charge and it knows what kind of movie it is. It doesn't take itself seriously at all. And uh, and it's fun to watch Cruz play uh, kind of a, a not a loser, but uh, not not the all-powerful being that he is in the Mission Impossible movies. He's, he's a guy who doesn't know what he's doing. He's in over his head and he has to kind of figure his way out of it. And it's uh, it's uh, an appealing bit of casting for sure. Yeah, I um, I have a real mixed feelings about this 
picture. I remember seeing it first at IMAX, and I was kind of grossed out by it. I just found the the intensity of it. Maybe I ate too much popcorn, <laughs> but I just found myself kind of my stomach churned uh, watching this sort of mechanical, very intense action movie. Um, but I, I watched it again on streaming services and uh, liked it more. And I, I, I respect the cleverness of it, of the construction, and what director Doug Lyman does here, along with uh, writer Christopher McQuarrie, uh, especially uh, brings to it a, uh, a cleverness and a knowingness. But I just found the whole thing kind of hollow. Um, I would recommend the film if you're a fan of Blunt. Uh, he or she has a more physical role than she's ever played before and she's really good and i think she and cruz as usual she has she manages to muster chemistry with her her uh leading men when when the the film requires it um and and they have something they, they connect i think but i i guess i kind of you know cruz the hot shot eventually shows up after he gets training over and over and over again to become he gets this opportunity to to learn as he goes you know that video game model and uh i just find that that starts to steamroll everything in its path and uh by the time that the third act rolls around i was pretty much done with the movie um and watching it again i still feel kind of exhausted by it i guess uh <laughs> i i uh, i would recommend you know duncan jones source code if you want to uh see something that is a little more uh nuanced than this or even any number of star trek episodes but uh yeah i, I did you know obviously blunt is makes it worth seeing uh, bill paxton is great as well he's playing kind of an amalgam of Hudson, his character from Aliens, and Chet from Weird Science. Uh, you know, and I, I definitely see the aliens' indebtedness, and also, as you say, Starship Troopers, very much so, uh, to this film. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you're right. It does know what it, what it is, but uh, but I I couldn't love it, and uh, I I understand that it's gotten a cult following, and I mean, maybe a, a sequel is going to be made. I've heard rumors that that's in the works. But uh, I guess we'll see. Yeah, it is. I mean, it is purely mechanical. It is kind of like watching a video game being played in front of you. But but at least it it, it does so on a, on a pretty grand scale. And and I you know I enjoyed it for the popcorn movie that it is. Well, that wraps up this week's look at the films of Emily Blunt. Obviously, we didn't touch on all of them. There are a lot of them out there, but uh, plenty to sample on uh, on various formats and platforms. And it's hard to go wrong with any of them. She's always wonderful in, in pretty much anything she's in. Uh, so uh, hopefully it gives you a few ideas of some things to look for. My name is Stephen Cook, and uh, it's been a pleasure to be here with you. You can find me on Twitter at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. And I'm Karsten Knox, and you can find me on Twitter named after my... Uh my blog flaw in the iris and uh lends me your ears is on twitter as well and we have a facebook page as always we give thanks to the folks at ckdu 88.1 fm in halifax who air us every other tuesday at 5 30 p.m and also for the use of their studio when we're able to use their studio and of course the village soundcast network which makes the show sound great and gets it up on all the podcast platforms for you to enjoy thanks very much and we'll see you next time Lensmere Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Send feedback to Podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.
This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.